are listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. All right, Nick, we're back from Compton's, man. I had a I had a blast. It was a bit warm, but it was fun nonetheless. How about you? Oh, it was great. It, it was definitely one of the hotter or more humid years that I've been there, and the bugs were just the, 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 not the mosquitoes so much, but the flies were everywhere. But you know what? It doesn't matter. Archers, we're tough. We deal with it. Every, there was still a lot of smiling faces at the event, and everybody had a good time, and, and Compton put on a great event. And I didn't notice I didn't notice it flies all that much out on the course. It was really in the in the vendor tent. And I'm thinking there's there's more than one vendor that probably got more than they bargained for with regards to their intake of protein those those few days because those flies were everywhere. <laughs> they really were. I don't know why they were in the tent so much concentrated, but I mean, um, it, it, it whenever any of these poor people were sitting down to eat their lunches, I just felt terrible. I was like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it looked was, like you were, they were in the plains of Africa or something. There was just flies all over. Uh, but, man, I mean, we got to shoot quite a bit. Um, you know, it was good to see you and Lori and Bella, and we got to shoot. Man, I haven't shot that many rounds with you in a while. No, it's, it's I guess, probably since the, the last Compton's, and I don't know if you and I got to shoot that much last year, but, yeah, we... We got to shoot quite, shoot quite a bit, and and it was good to see uh, Jess and and your kids as well. Um, yeah, it was just overall, it was just a great event. I think we ended up shooting five or six courses uh, total, um, mm-hmm. or I did. I know I don't think we got to shoot every every round with you, but pretty close. Yep, and uh, I mean we had uh, we got to see Tom too, and we got to see uh, Rick and Doug, um, and all those guys, the, the Camp Hambush crew. So that, that was fun and got to meet some new people. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, it was a really good time. I mean, I, I didn't stay long. I came Friday and I stayed the night and then I left Saturday late and I didn't want to leave you guys Saturday night, but you know, we had with father's day on Sunday and when Jess and the kids did come, they didn't come for very long and they just kind of played in the park and Jess really kind of just did that for me. And so I could see the girls and, and they didn't even shoot. They were so hot and with red faced and everything and i thought you know i should get home so i can have the whole day with my with with jess and the kids and and it was a it was a perfect day my father's day was a perfect day so i regretted leaving but i would there i had to it was one of those things and i get it and i was wore out brother i mean you look at i know tom was wore out too i looked at him across the fire or not the fire because we didn't have a fire but i looked at him across the tent and he looked like he was just done (laughs) <laughs> well, every, everybody was pretty much pretty much sapped. I know I hung out after you left probably another hour and a half, two hours with uh, some of the, the Michigan BHA guys. Um, Ryan and Neil uh, were there uh, talking to those guys, and Jarrett from Bone Broadheads was, was hanging out with all those. We managed to get a, a photo um, of all the BHA guys that were still hanging around in camp that evening. But, yeah, it was, it was just sticky. It felt like you could – write your name in the humidity it looked it was, like you guys crawled out of the water yeah it was <laughs> they were like hey let's take a photo i mean it kind of felt like that but uh and um the funny part was friday night we had this wild idea that a lot of the out-of-state guys had never seen escanaba in the moonlight and you guys had gone back to the hotel already and <laughs> doug doug gilmer go or gilmore goes well i got it in a tv he brought it outside after it got dark and we had like a movie theater (laughs) night with popcorn jiffy pop over the fire and they couldn't believe what they were watching (laughs) 
<laughs> it was hilarious to watch people who had never seen Escanaba in the moonlight watch it for the first time. That was that was a yeah. blast. I hate I hate I missed that. Can never get enough Escanaba. <laughs> well, people started leaving. Well, the kids started watching it. There was a bunch of kids, and they were doing that scene in the bar with the pool cues. And I was like, the parent, everybody was looking at us, and I was like, I forgot about that part. Uh, <laughs> yep, yep. But man, it was a great time. And um, I, you know, I didn't buy a whole lot. I don't know about you. I only bought I bought a BHA shirt, and I bought a a hat um, for fishing, like a an open top, you know, cotton wax cotton hat, and that's it. Yeah, I bought uh, so I bought some string material, uh, obviously for for simply traditional and, and the strings that I'm making. Uh, Chad Weaver was there and got some string material from him. Um, I bought uh, Bella had been wanting a, a public lands uh, shirt, uh, public land on a shirt like mine, so I got one of those from the BHA guys for her, and I did buy a shirt from uh, the TradQuest guys. Really enjoyed talking to. Uh, James and, and Bob probably stopped by there at least once a day and, and chatted with those guys a, a good bit. And, uh, while, I mean, just all the people that I could think about that either came up and, and spoke that I hadn't met before or, or people that I've, you know, I've seen at that shoot before. I'm, uh, I was, it, every time I walked through the tent, I was, I was stopping and talking to probably five or six people. So, yeah, that's, um, uh, that's my really problem. cool. That's my problem. Quotation marks too. It's, uh, you know, being from the area, I know so many people and, and, you walk through there, it's like a giant family reunion. Everybody wants to talk. And um, I got to meet Bob the Bowhunter. Um, I didn't get to meet Jason. Um, you mean James? James, not Jason. James. Uh, I didn't get to meet James. So that was kind of a bummer. Um, but uh, And I got I to pick up a, some swag from those guys, too. They have a great show. But they were very nice guys. Um, I was hoping to get a chance to shoot with them or something. But, man, there was just so many people. I got pulled aside so many times. Not that that's a bad thing, uh, but always fun. It, it, they are like giant family reunions. That's one of the greatest, the great things about the traditional community. Yeah, well, like I said, it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed the shooting. I was actually, uh, I'll be honest. I'm and and you're gonna give me you're gonna give me a, a hard time with uh, the whole bragging hashtag bragging thing. But I was I'm I'm very happy with the way I was shooting. I just hope I can I can keep that through no through uh september when we tom and i head to to wyoming because i i was I, I, everything was just feeling really good everything was clicking you you really were you were shooting great and uh i got some things to work out i think um with just just the arrows um yeah you were having some arrow challenges i was but you know what i i actually you know you and i not to get too far into it had thought that i i was underspined and i looked at all my arrows when i got home and i was like because i had brought some woods and those were definitely not for that bow um i thought they were but they weren't and um i got home and checked all my carbons and my aluminums and stuff and i mean i'm shooting 22 16s and i'm shooting 350 carbons um now what i did realize though is that i only had about 200 up front and on a full length shaft and um i'm playing with that a little bit right now i have some tough head 300 grain heads coming in gluons and i'm gonna try those on my aluminums that's gonna bump my aluminums up to 400 on the front and because mm. i like the way that yours are about 400 right up front yeah uh about four sixty five four seventy and see like i that. shot your arrows out my bow and it quieted right down and shot great 
once I got over that, I mean, I was shooting those really good deer arrows after. Oh, that last, the last course you were shooting really well. And that's, <laughs> that's saying something considering you're, what's, what's the, what's the weight on, on Phoenix? It 50, it, well, it's 53 pounds at, at 28. So I'm drawing probably 55, 56. And you were shooting 800 plus grain arrows. So, I mean, <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, you were, you were shooting it really good by the, by the end of the, uh, by the last day. So yeah, with that, no, with no problem. So I'm, I'm going to do some experimenting before, and you know, now's the time of year to do it when you and I are starting to get serious about, about our, our trip coming up here. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you got your trip, but then I'm coming down to visit you in November. So I'm, I'm getting everything set up and, uh, you know, right now I've got, so I bumped up my, my point weight and all of my arrows. And I think I might've been even under, you know, we were thinking under, or under spy or overspined. I'm thinking I might be underspined. Um, you know, strike that, reverse it. Um, but I think I need higher, I think I need heavier point weight. I All I know is I could I could hear the the knock end of your arrow hitting the riser as it went by. So I mean it was the, it was definitely not the right arrow for the bow that you were well, shooting. Well, and, and I had some seventy seventy five woods, and I put three hundred grains up front on those, and those were quiet. Um, yeah. So that's why I ordered the tough heads. I'm going to try those on my twenty two sixteens, and I bumped up a hundred grains on my carbons, and the carbons seem to be shooting pretty good. I'm not the thing is though, Steve is I got I got to do some bear shaft. Um, I haven't bear shafted that bow and I should have, I figured it shoot just like my other bow. And that was a mistake. I, I, I should have, I should have bear saved one of mine to bear shaft and done that. But I think at some point I'm going to recreate the arrows that you've got that I was shooting out that bow. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I'm going to hold off on that for now and just get something working. Um, but anyway, I know we're not, well, we can, we can talk. There's some options. I can get you pretty close to that without going with the, the the expensive stainless steel insert adapters i use i can, I can probably get you pretty close the the so. adamantium arrow rig that you and tom have patented uh, <laughs> tom tom's the one that came up with it i just I, I just took advantage of his hard work but yeah i love it i wouldn't i wouldn't change anything about it although uh i did i did spend a good bit of time talking to Jarrett um, from bone broadheads. And I think I'm going to give those a try. I've been doing some research on a, uh, a 200 grain threaded insert. Um, and if, if I can, uh, and get a set and, and, and they tune fairly well, then I think what I'm going to do is just, I'm going to 24 hour epoxy everything together. So it's close to being one piece, like what I shoot now up front, but it, mm-hmm. it's still going to be a threaded head, but I am. I really do want to give them a try. I like I like Jared. I like talking to him a lot, and I really just like supporting guys like that that are that are trying to build something from from the ground up. So. Oh, and what what a great guy with a great family, and it was uh, it was fun meeting uh, DJ too. Absolutely. So, so yeah. shout out to those guys. Uh, every BHA person we've met's been great. So uh, yeah, you. I, I I'm the same way. I've I've yet to find anybody that i just couldn't sit and talk to for hours that's that's involved with bha so mm-hmm. so and we also we also managed to to get uh, sorry i'm not trying to talk over you no. we, we managed to get a few interviews in while we were there too so some great interviews that was a that was a lot of fun it was it was a bit challenging finding a, a place to record where uh, there wasn't a lot of noise going on but we we did succeed and in fact one of them <laughs> i think is really cool because when i started listening to some of the audio playback there's you it's it's like you're sitting around the campfire because you can hear the birds chirping in the background so forth and this that's really cool but but this week we've got uh jerry brum from great northern 
We do, and this is uh, this is very special. Um, I've known Jerry for a while now, and uh, Jerry's just Jerry's got stories. Jerry's been around, um, and he's just he's fantastic. It makes a fantastic bow, and the quivers are you know with the sun bob are just top notch. Yeah, and I've I've talked to him. I've talked to him pretty much every every time I've been to Compton, stopped by his booth, chat with him a, a few minutes, but I never really had a chance to sit down and really talk to him, so I, I really enjoyed it. So what do you say we just get right to it? Yep, let's do that. All right, so Nick and I are here at uh, the Compton's Traditional Bow Hunters Rendezvous in Bering Springs, Michigan, and we've managed to squirrel away Mr. Jerry Brum of Great Northern Bow Company, and we're just going to have a nice little campfire chat sitting here in the air conditioning trying to keep a little cool here so uh how's the shoot going for you nick oh it's going good it's beautiful this year lots of people uh one of the busiest years i've seen here since i started going here four or five years ago so what about you jerry i've been to every one of these that they've had and uh i don't get out and around much so i can't tell how big the crowd is all i know is what you know comes by the uh by our booth and uh uh, I'm in one place and they come by, but the, for a Thursday there seems to be more crowd and people tell me that there's no that the camping is all filled up. So uh, yeah, they're all good years. Anytime you can attend mm-hmm. every at a, any place where it's all traditional people, you know, or potential traditional people, it's a good place. Yeah, we got a good crowd going here, and it's still hard to walk around and not see somebody that says hi to you or say hi back that you know. You know, it's it's so great to see so many people. But uh, what about you, Steve? You had a long drive to get here. About 12 hours. We drove up uh, Wednesday afternoon, um, stayed with Tom Jorgensen for the, for, for the night, and then I've worked from his house yesterday. So we, we climbed in the car this morning and, and drove over, and as soon as we got out, we were uh, several people we knew was just standing in front, and everybody was talking about how, how crowded it was already this year and said there was a lot of people on the course uh, as early as Wednesday. So... Sounds like it's been a lot of fun for people. Yeah, the courses are great. The shooting's been really good. Lots of vendors. Yeah, it's always fun coming here on the river and and all that. So, well, with that, why don't we just jump right into it, Jerry? Because I know that you got a story to tell, and and we, we don't want to keep you away from your we don't want to keep you away from your booth too long. <laughs> yeah, oh, we that's... got we got a lot of questions to ask you too. <laughs> so to start it off, how'd you get into bow hunting? Well, I'm 76. I started bow hunting when I was you know legally 14 and uh, I don't even remember when that was 1955 56 someplace in there uh, grew up on a farm that we hunted uh, it was just you know a way of life uh, bow hunting nobody else in my family bow hunted uh, but I wanted a bow and arrow when I was a kid and my folks got me one when I think I was maybe yeah. 10 uh, Ben Pearson mm-hmm. a bow and a hickory bow which I still have and I was left-handed, so that was a little bit of a, you know, handicap would be today. Back then, bows were, you know, you could shoot off them either side. There were no shelf on them. Right. So anyway, uh, shot about everything there was to shoot at, anything that moved, didn't move, did a lot of frog hunting. But that's where it really started. Uh, a little later on, I had a, a, a buddy, uh, that uh, another farm kid, lived two or three miles from us. And his folks worked for Action Rod, which later became Proline. They started, they built fishing rods 
And then they started building solid fiberglass bows. Mm -hmm. This would have been in the mid to late 50s. And uh, uh, they both, his parents both worked at that factory. And because they did, they got to buy equipment real cheap. So they got, they got into bow hunting and, and started going to shoots and dragged me along because I was always hanging around their son anyway. Because mm -hmm. my parents, uh, we were farmers and they didn't have, you know, we didn't spend a lot of time together on weekends or recreational wise, we're always working. But anyway, started going to shoots and they went up north bow hunting and invited me to go along with this old solid fiberglass bow. And that's how, you know, it started. It would have been, uh, again, in the, in the mid-50s someplace. But uh, I've been doing it ever since. And never had any intention of building bows. Uh, that, of course, happened much later. But uh, we got, I don't know if you want me to go into that. Or sure. This, yeah. yeah, go for it. In uh, the early 80s, Anderson's Archery Clinic uh, in Grand Ledge, Michigan. It was before you guys' day. I've heard kinda. all about it. Though. Okay, yeah. it was a huge. It was probably the largest archery event. And Anderson Archery Sales was a worldwide distributor of all things related to bow hunting. Now keep in mind, this is there was no there were no compounds, so right, right. it wasn't traditional mm -hmm. archery. It was it was bow hunting. It was archery. So uh, I had a hardware store, and we had a sporting goods section. And uh, so I w always went over to Anderson Archery Sales when they had their summer, their clinic, yeah. to uh, see what was new on the market, what I could put in my shop, and so on and All so right. forth. And uh, I, at that time, was shooting a, a compound, uh, had moved up what I thought at that time. I was a compound dealer for a couple different distributors, mm -hmm. so I felt that I had to know the equipment. That's my excuse now. <laughs> uh, but anyway... Uh, make a long story short, I, Michigan traditional bow hunters, no, Michigan Longbow Association had a booth. Uh, Ron LeClaire was there and uh, Norm Blaker. Norm sat over in the corner beating two rocks together like he does mm -hmm. so efficiently. Yep. And, and uh, Ron was promoting the Longbow Association, Michigan Longbow Association. It was a brand new organization. And uh, he asked me if I ever shot a longbow. Well, of course, that's all we had, you know. And he said, well, would you like to shoot? Do you shoot one? No. I said, no, you know, I shoot a compound. You've heard this story a thousand times, but uh, he's, Rod said, would you like to shoot a longbow? And I said, well, I'm, I'm left-handed. I can't, you know. He said, well, so am I. And he handed me his bow. And this is, God is my witness. I shot three arrows out of his longbow at a little smiley target sitting over in the corner of that boat booth never looked back you know i bought a rod at that time was selling longbows uh for a couple different uh, local guys and i bought a longbow and started shooting coerced uh, a friend of mine into shooting mm -hmm. uh, rick shepherd which later become my partner mm -hmm. right and one day in the mid 80s we uh, decided that we could probably build a bow cheaper and a lot quicker than what you could buy them because at that time there maybe were 10 boyers in the United States and everybody's backlogged six months and the prices were what was at that time was pretty pretty steep so so anyway Rick and I built a bow that didn't turn out so good so we built another one and 
And what year was this again? That was in 1984. 1984. Oh, wow. And have not, I have not, you know, haven't been caught up since. <laughs> we hit it market-wise just by, just by chance. We hit it perfect, you know. What is now traditional bow hunting became popular. It was going uphill, uh, you know. Uh, people were picking it up and trying it, and and uh, we just we had bows to build right from day one. Finally, to a point where Rick quit his job. He was a manager of a propane gas dealership, and I sold the hardware store, and we started building bows. Uh, we did it. Uh, we did it for five years part time, on evenings and, and Saturdays sure. and uh, could see that there was definitely a market there. So we went from there and uh, formed Great Northern Great Northern Longbow Company at that time mm -hmm. and started building bows. And as I say, the much is, you know, the rest of it's pretty much history. We have not been caught up since. So. Very interesting. Now, how many, how many different, so when you first start out, obviously you were just making one one bow how many different types of bows have you made over the years there's seven different models seven different models and each model and several different lengths mm -hmm. and several different cores so i'm not a mathematician but they tell me that there's millions of combinations that you can put together sure which has always been a concern because if i was in the market for a bow and i went to me i would have no idea of where to start what do i want what you know? What is best? What is best for me? And it's it's tough, you know, uh, helping people pick out a bowl. I I'm glad I'm not in that situation. So, what was your favorite style of bow to build? A bush bowl, which was bush our bowl? bread yeah. and butter bowl. We started uh, back in probably '86, '87, someplace in there. I saw a bowl that uh, Jay Massey had. He and Dick Robertson had built this bowl. And uh, I don't remember what they called it at the time, but it was one of those things that you looked at it and you said, that's it, you know, the perfect bow, so right. to speak. And so we kind of somewhat, we didn't copy it, but in that same style, moderate reflex deflex, wide limbed, like we would think that the Native American people would have built, you know, and used. Mm -hmm. And uh, it became very, very popular. And a little later on, two or three years later, I apologized to Dick Robertson that said, you know, we kind of copied that or took it away from you. And he said, we were at a show. We were at PBS Bank. We said, come with me. I want to show you something. We went around the corner to a display. And here was a, a, a display of Ben Pearson bows. And here was a bush bow. I don't know what it was called, but it was almost identical in major ship stars. He said, there's nothing new. Yeah. You can't invent a new traditional bow you know the laws of physics just there's only won't allow you to do it it's all been done yep just different and, and it's true it. there isn't anything all, all you can do is rehash bring to light old ideas and maybe you know improve on them in, in your mind but yeah. there's only so much performance you can eke out of right. it there's only right. so much stability that you right. can mm -hmm. yeah the and, laws uh, of physics uh, and finding which balance that you want yep Yep. And different people, there's no perfect bow. Different people want mm -hmm. different things. You know, the name Bush Bow, uh, Bear Build a Bush Bow, uh, I don't know how many, just a few. I had one that I my uncle had given me, and uh, it was Osage. It, was, uh, it wasn't backed with fiberglass. It had uh, Fortistan, 
on the backing, which is kind of a parallel plastic fiber. And uh, anyway, that's where the name came from. The bush bow was all from that old. And our, some of our bow names we have kind of, like the ghost mm -hmm. is a ghost of the, of the Kodiak, of the bear bows, mm -hmm. and uh, super ghost, super Kodiak. It all fit in at the time. Bear wasn't doing any of this. You know, they weren't building any bows. And we just kind of, being from Michigan and that being from Michigan, we kind of took that to heart resurrected the bear sure the bear legacy in our own in our own subtle ways so oh really i never really thought of it that yeah. way i was going to ask you like how did you how did you decide to branch out into other models with it yeah. was it somebody said did somebody come up to you and say hey we'd like to see this you know a short 50 style recurve or can you do that or whatever so you basically took those other styles and said i'd like to do my own take on that no one was doing it at the time the 50 style recurve uh no one was making a 50 style recurve everything was you know what I call a contemporary grip, you know, in the wide limbs and everything. And uh, we, uh, when we started making that ghost, we had a '55 Kodiak that we used for the limb design because it was so pretty, so sleek. And uh, uh, later on, we found out that, uh, in fact, Glenn St. Charles told me I built him a bow, by the way. Oh. And uh, I said you should recognize that bow because of his association with bear, and he was a bear dealer. He says, oh, I recognize it, all right. He said when Fred Bear started building those recurves, he said he borrowed one of my, my uh, what was it, Thunder? Thunderbird. Thunderbird bows. And next thing I know, he's got a, you know, has a, has a recurve. And he said it kind of proud-like. You know? Sure. But uh, so mm -hmm. anyway, that bow design, and people don't realize that, came from Glen St. Charles. And not only our bow design, but Bear, bear line that they're using right. today. So yeah. that whole thing, everything is tied in together. It's so neat when you get back and those story that's that's what I like to tell is those connections that nobody nobody realizes and we we love those as well we actually had uh, Jay St. Charles on a few weeks back and he was telling and it's amazing how many links there are yes especially when you go back you know into the into the early years so to speak very cool and yeah. I own that bow that Glenn that we built Glenn he's left-handed he wanted it at a raffle at a PBS banquet and he's left-handed, he's just traditionally left-handed. And so he asked us if we would make him, well, yeah, of course, we would make you a bow, whatever you want. Mm -hmm. You know, he's like God. And uh, so anyway, we made him a left-handed bow and it's 45 pounds at 28 inches, Osage, and uh, put his name on it and the date and the whole nine yards, you know. And uh, here a couple years ago, I got a call from Joe and uh, he wanted to know if that bow was fast flight compatible. And I said, well, <laughs> you know, you fast flight by brand, I don't care for. But I said, as far as a high tech string, it won't hurt it. You can just so. Yeah. I hung up the phone, and about ten minutes later, it hit me. He's going to sell that bow. It's left handed. Oh yeah. I'm not as strong as I used to be. So I called him back, and I ended up buying the bow from him. So I have that. That bow has come full circle. Oh, I wow. own that bow. That is a and great It's on story. display with a thank you letter that I got from from Glenn. Uh, thanking us for that bow and apologizing for us having to make him a left-handed one, you know, which was an honor. It wasn't like it was a hardship or anything. Man, that is so, cool. And man. I've got pictures of him shooting that bow. If you check with people that were at his place his last few years of life, that was his go-to bow. That was his favorite bow. I've got pictures of him shooting it, uh, you know, and... Uh, I've got a picture, in fact, in the, I hate to ramble on here, but... No, oh, this, this is great, great to ramble on. If you look on. at our our catalog several years ago, we had put a picture. Uh, Glenn had sent me a photo mm -hmm. 
uh, just a little little guy. And he said, I like the bow. On it. it was written in marker on it. Well, we use that picture in our catalog, uh, you know, and, and uh, with the story on how that bow came to be about his design. And uh, I saw him in a, at the uh, safari. We were in Montana, I believe, in, at Missoula. And uh, he got after me a little bit for, for using that picture because I didn't have permission. I said, well, you sent me the picture. <laughs> you know, and I told the story. And he said, oh, he said, when, he said, when I get around to it, he said, I think I'll sue you. Mm-hmm. He's just pulling my leg. Sure. I told him, go ahead. I said, when I get around to it, I'll pay you. you know, so, and then he said, oh, by the way, could I get half a dozen of those catalogs? You know, he wanted them for whole time's sake. So, yeah, he... Uh, he, uh, he was quite a guy. Yeah, I hope I don't. I hope I don't tell this wrong. If I do, Jay will set me straight. But you know, Glenn wasn't always left-handed. Oh, right. I know that. Yeah, yeah. he shot right-handed, and the reason he switched to shooting left-handed was to beat target panic. He developed. Well, it was a, a case of target panic, but it was from the trick shooting, mm-hmm. according to what Jay's told me. He couldn't. He just developed target panic and had to switch to left hand. To, to, to relearn. Of course, see, Glenn shot a compound, too. Mm-hmm. He shot a compound right-handed. Shot traditional stuff left-handed. <laughs> well, but, you know, that way you can separate. Right. That's In why people change mm-hmm. when they get target panic because it's a whole new sport when you change. You're right-handed, correct, Nick? Yeah. You sh- Okay. Have you ever shot left-handed? I, in fact, two weeks ago, and it was awful. <laughs> okay, so you know that... Not, but you can get rid of a lot of problems. You develop a whole new set of problems. But it's like you were just a beginner archery. But all your bad habits that create target panic, you know, your hand-eye coordination that you've lost and, and all your triggers, uh, those all go away because you got new things to worry about now. Mm-hmm. Like, can I get the full draw? And where's my face gone? Exactly. You know? <laughs> yeah, that was the big thing. And why yeah, am I like, shooting <laughs> like a girl? <laughs> Sorry, ladies. No, <laughs> no, exactly. When I was drawing, I'm like, where do I put this? Like, I couldn't figure out where to put my hand. <laughs> that was really, really weird. Uh, but anyway, was there... Uh, so that's got to be a top moment for you with Great Northern. But, I mean, can you think of any other times with Great Northern and your bow building that was just a highlight for you? Like, just stands out? Wow. I mean. I know. I there's so, so many years. I love building bows. You know, 8,000 bows later, I still love building bows. Uh, I mean, I've been so fortunate to be able to do something that that was so near and dear to my heart. And, I mean, I didn't plan on it. It just happened, you know, just the way it was. But, <sighs> Boy, I guess I'm still a little partial to, for nostalgia's sake, to a longbow, to a true longbow with a little bit of setback, uh, at least 66 inches. My draw isn't that long. It's 27 inches. So a 66-inch longbow, uh, I'm better with it than I am any anything else. It doesn't always fit the circumstances, but... You can usually make it work. You have a plan ahead. You know, they say, well, they don't work out of a tree stand. Sure they do. You know, you cut that little branch and that little branch, and <laughs> you're good to go. It's just whatever you, you know, make it do. But I'm still pretty partial to that. Yeah. All my bows, most of my bows I've got on my own are way too heavy anymore. So, Man. So let's talk a little bit about how did the, how did the expo come, come about, the traditional bow hunters expo? We were, I say we, Great Northern, Rick and I, and uh, my wife Sharon, 
were on our way home from someplace, and I can't offhand tell you where, doesn't matter. We had been to a show, uh, and uh, it was kind of a general show, and there was a lot of misinformation about traditional bow hunting, about, well, you guys, you got a snap shoot, and, you know, you got to shoot, you got to shoot heavy poundages, and all this, this information that just wasn't true. And I told Rick, I said, we ought to have some seminars or something to straighten people out as to what's, you know, what traditional archery is all about. And uh, I don't know how far away we were from home. I mean, it was something probably in the 10, 12 hour neighborhood. Anyway, mm -hmm. from the time that I came up with that idea, by the time we got home, we had the thing all planned. And uh, other than f at that time finding a, a home for it, because we weren't sure of, but we had decided we were going to have it. Originally, it was going to be a vendor-only show so that we could educate dealers to ask the right questions and give the right answers. Really? You know, huh. yeah. Well, we got into it just a little bit and, and realized that uh, we couldn't, in the middle of the winter in Michigan, you can't get 200 vendors together to have a show, let alone vendors coming in or or not so much vendors but dealers coming in to participate as as being a, a guest or to there for information so we opened it to the general public and uh the reason we did it in the winter time was what else do you do in michigan exactly. at the end of january you know shovel it, snow yeah 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 you shovel snow <laughs> well, i call you know, it bow christmas i mean because yeah, it's well, it is it's, it's new year's yeah, and you're you like know, what do we do we got to dust it we got to shake well, the dust you off stop and, and think people getting their income tax Refunds, exactly. You know, so and timing was everything. Yep. But the same timing, end of Ju uh, the end of January is what a couple years, uh, you know, kind of was a setback with the snowstorms we had. But uh, mm -hmm. Sharon and I did it for twenty years until we turned it over to Bob. And uh, I, there were two years that we uh, that this that we that the weather affected us. And believe it or not, you can buy insurance against that. Really? Lloyd's of London. And we did. Policy wow. was real cheap, so we didn't lose any money. They ensured the fact that if we had a snowstorm, that they would pay the gate. This week on the Passing Down Tradition segment, the focus is on a proposed lease sale of parcels located on BLM land in southern Wyoming. Now, the proposed lease is for oil and natural gas mining, and at least part of these proposed leases are within the Red Desert to Hoback Mule Deer Migration Corridor. Now, this habit within this corridor plays a critical role in the health and sustainability of the iconic sublet mule deer herd. I first heard about this situation on the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers website. Fellow member Brian Webster posted an article about this need for action, and he included a letter written by another fellow BHA member, Eric Kramer, to the Secretary of Interior, Ryan Zinke. I tracked Eric down and had a quick chat with him by phone, so please listen in to what Eric has to say about this situation. So on the other end of the line, I've got uh, Eric Kramer. Eric's a Backcountry Hunters and Anglers member, and I recently read on the BHA website where he wrote a letter to Secretary of the Interior Ryan Zinke requesting he place a temporary hold on BLM oil and natural gas le leasing for parcels within the Red Desert to Hoback Migration Corridor. Uh, so I've got Eric on the other end of the line. How are you, Eric? I'm doing well, Steve. How about yourself? 
doing really well, doing really well. I've been uh, kind of looking forward to to catching up with you and talking to you. I know we've exchanged a few emails. Um, so I guess um, just jump right in and, and kind of explain for our listeners the importance of protecting this red desert to, to back migration corridor. All right. Well, yeah, in case the listeners haven't um, haven't heard about it before, I'll just give a little bit of quick background about it. So there's a there's a population of mule deer in in western Wyoming that spends the winter in uh, an area called the Red Desert in southern Wyoming. And you know, once the snow starts to melt and vegetation is greening up, they'll you know they'll uh, embark on a migration north and they'll travel 150 miles one way to um, the Hoback River Basin, and they'll spend where they'll spend the summer in uh, high alpine basins, you know, above nine or 10,000 feet. Um, and yeah, researchers using GPS collars that, you know, confirm that this migration was occurring and that it is the, the longest migration of any land mammals in the lower 48. So it's a pretty, pretty phenomenal thing, um, especially in today's day and age with, you know, how much development we have uh, across the West and across the country. Um, and especially considering some of the challenges that they you know, encounter along this migration, uh, you know, they're crossing private land, public land boundaries. Uh, they're crossing lakes, rivers. I think they cross over a hundred fences on this trip and, you know, they're neck down into some bottlenecks due to development and, and topography. And, and also they encounter lots of energy development on the way, you know, on the way to and from their summer range and back to the, the winter range. Um, and yeah, so like you said, BLM is planning to lease some of the, some land within this corridor, which is quite narrow uh, for oil and gas development. And, you know, there's, there's been research in other areas within the same region where, you know, heavy oil and gas development led to, you know, declines in mule deer populations. And, you know, this is a population of, I hunt the, I actually hunt, I hunt the summer range where these deer um, spend the summer up in the high country. And, you know, as a resident, I can, I can actually hunt these deer with an over-the-counter tag, general tag with pretty generous seasons, but, uh, you know, it's not what it used to be um, due to a lot of factors, development and, and um, oil and gas development and such. Um, so seasons have been shortened and over the past several decades. Um, so I think, and mule deer is a sensitive species, their, their winter range especially is sensitive, which is where these leases are, are being proposed. Um, and, and, uh, you know, we've had hard winters. So the mule deer are dealing with a lot of challenges and it just doesn't seem worth it that, you know, a little more oil and gas extraction, uh, you know, is not worth the potential further threats to the mule deer populations. Um, so that's kind of the, that's kind of a, a good summary of, of the issue and why it's important that, you know, we protect these migration corridors, which we probably used to have a lot more of them in, um, throughout this country, but that we just didn't know about. But now that we're finding out about them, I think it's our responsibility to do everything we can to preserve them. I would have, I would heartily agree with you. 
Um, so I guess you're kind of on a roll here, Eric. So uh, how about you um, tell our listeners what they can what they can do to take action and to help? Well, yeah, most immediately right now, uh, what we can do is so um, there there had been a public comment period on this BLM um, leasing issue, uh, but right now uh, that you know that ended recently. But what we can do now is you can send a letter to Wyoming Governor Matt Mead. And uh, it's pretty easy. Just Google contact Governor Matt Mead's office, you know, contact Wyoming governor's office. And uh, we can send him a letter because he can still have some, potentially have some influence on whether um, these leases go ahead. Um, so, yeah. And what, what I would, what I would say in that letter is just thank him for, you know, supporting efforts to protect migration corridors in Wyoming because he has done that and uh and then just you know and encourage him to you know continue continue fighting for protections of important migration corridors um because you know you could even add in there you know anyone can come hunt these deer uh during the hunting season and in some of the most beautiful spectacular country you know in in this nation, I think. Um, so, you know, say I want to hunt these deer someday and want to make sure they're still around for me and my kids and my grandkids. And, uh, yeah, so, and, and on top of that, you know, I try to try to join several conservation groups. You know, I like to, um, join a few that focus on habitat and then a few that focus on, you know, public advoc- public land advocacy, you know, especially uh, backcountry hunters and anglers. Um, they've they've really just inspired me with the work they've been doing in recent years. You know, since I've since I've joined and you know gotten involved with them. So, you know, I mean, yeah, first thing you can do is you know join backcountry hunters and anglers if you haven't already. And if you have, I think you know one step further is you know get involved, you know, spend, um, spend some time volunteering with them or just look for, you know, look for events in your area. If they're holding a pint night or anything like that to talk about public land issues, um, I think, and then ask them what you can do to help in any way. I think, I think that would go a long way. And I agree with you wholeheartedly, Eric. I think it's probably the best $25 $25 a year anybody could spend uh, or heck, you know, do what I did a few, uh, well, I guess about a year ago, you know, become a life member. Um, and then, like you said, contribute and, and participate wherever you can. I've met some some really great people with a BHA. Um, last thing I'll ask, you mentioned uh, um, you kind of participate in uh, conservation groups as well. Can you just give one example of, of someone, of a group you'd recommend? Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot of that are state specific, you know, local groups, um, or, you know, so we have the Wyoming Wildlife Federation here, which is, which is, um, part of a larger conservation group, um, that you can, you can, they might have a, um, they might have one in your state. So you can look for that or, you know, the Mule Deer Foundation, or uh, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, or, you know, any of those groups are great. 
Sure. Well, Eric, I, I really do appreciate your time. Like I said, I think it's a, a real good thing to get you on here and, and kind of get awareness out there about the situation and, and hopefully we can do some good. I'll be sure to uh, do a little research and get some contact information for the governor's office and put that on the website as well um, just to help people out. So thank you so much. And uh, I really do appreciate you coming on here and letting our listeners, listeners know more about what's going on. Thank you. Well, absolutely. I appreciate you having me. There you go, folks. I will include a link to email Governor Meade's office in the show notes of this podcast. Please take the time to send the governor a note asking him to step in and to protect this critical habitat for future generations. Also, if you're not a member already, please consider joining BHA. And if you are a member, then please consider supporting one of the other great organizations that Eric spoke of. Now back to our conversation with Mr. Jerry Brom. And I know if we don't bring this up, so I don't know if it's a good time to bring it up or not, but if we don't, I know there will be listeners upset. But we're so at what point did the quivers, when, when was the quivers born? Uh, I can guess in the late 80s, there were no traditional, there's that word again. There were no bow hunting quivers out there that would that worked on on longbows. Uh, there was one that w- was made locally around Hastings uh, that was uh, uh, Velcro, but it wouldn't stay. Mm-hmm. And plus, you know, anyway. So we started fooling around with eighth inch drill rod and what we had to go by again. Going back to Barry, remember their old thumb screw mm-hmm. little bolt on yep. quiver that was sure wire framed with a little leather backing and it went on with one thumb screw that took it not a thumb screw but a dime screw that you used a dime or a coin mm-hmm. to put it on and off set right, right on the handle okay we weighed one of those and it was a wire frame you know that quiver was a wire frame a foam hood and weighed seven ounces it held three arrows originally that was our goal was to get a lightweight quiver like that that would stay balanced on a bow and rick and i had been over in the corner and you know bending wires and trying to come up with this or that and that's how that quiver evolved i could take you back and show you some of the early ones and and other than method of construction and and things that didn't there wasn't a lot of difference in it but uh in our mind what we were after is making one quiver that you could use and that would last you a lifetime. You never had to replace. And, and it's definitely one of the, if not the most popular. Uh, seems to be. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, and I'm proud of that. What I'm proud quiver. of is when I open a, a bow hunting magazine and here's a guy, you know, that has been hunting Australia, Africa, whatever, and his bow's laying there and it's got a great northern quiver on it. I mean, it just it just makes me burst with pride because Rick and I designed that right from scratch. We, you know, and yeah, it's it's been a great. So I got to throw a trivia question out. Any idea how many of those quivers you've sold over the years? No idea. <laughs> None. Lots. <laughs> yeah, definitely lots. A lifetime's yeah. worth. A lot. <laughs> A few lifetimes worth, I'm yeah. imagining. And the only the only thing that Rick and I, we kind of pushed our own agenda, uh, and you can see it in our bows. You can still see it in our bows, is a sim- simplistic design. We didn't go in for overlays and underlays and frills and fancy this, fancy that. We built bows for bow hunters. Mm-hmm. 
and the quiver was the same way. We didn't care what it looked like as long as it was extremely functional and, you know, and everybody could use it. So, but that's evolved into, you know, it's Bob has, has taken it into, they're yeah. a lot nicer looking, you know, than they were when we started building them. And uh, he is, you keep having to come up with uh, different size grippers now because of the arrows. So many, so many different, different sizes. So, right. And he said, you got to keep up with that or you, you know, you, mm -hmm. but uh, we, yeah. And I was just going to say the average, I would, I would almost want to know how, what the average fan of the Great Northern Quiver, how many they each, because I own three um, for different reasons. I'd say you're about average. I've owned three. Yeah. Yep, so. Yeah. I would say that. I've got more, <laughs> and I don't know why. Well, I like I, you know. <laughs> now I always, now I always call Bob up or text him or message him and say like, "Hey, can I? I want to try a different hood." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> a different hood. And, and he's so be... adaptable. You know, yeah. he's his marketing to, to bring all this stuff to a show. It's and all these hoods out there. So you pick the hood you want. You pick this. You pick that. You know, you custom building a quiver right there. Oh, in front it's really of you, cool. Which is For nobody sure. else does that. Well, and at you least know, I think. You know, hearkening back to what you said about bear, how you kind of looked at the bear quiver, which was available, and like you could at that time you could get the whole bear setup. You could get the bear arrows, the bear broadheads, the bear quiver, the bear bow. And I think it's kind of neat. I never thought about this. How you could get a great northern bow and you get a great northern quiver, and it kind of goes back yeah. to that whole idea i mean because they just scream bow hunting you know you got that sign on there and it and i can guarantee you there are a lot more non great northern bows with great northern quivers on them than there are than there are yeah. uh yeah. great northern bows yeah. with other quivers on them i mean <laughs> those things are everywhere but the ability to just accessorize i've seen them you know all kinds of special ones with basket quivers and and wool and and but you know what there's now there's like you can get the two-tone ones yeah. and stamps and it's just so neat to and the logos to, yeah that was the reason so i just bought uh just a few months ago, bought my third one because the the MLA logo. Sure. Um, yeah. One, yeah. He, and he put that yeah. on a uh, water water buffalo leather. I mean, it's gorgeous. Oh man. Back in the I'm gonna say in the 80s and 90s, and I may be wrong uh, years wise, but Delta used to uh, custom label quivers uh, for for other dealers. I mean, they did it for. Um, I'm throwing bear out there as an example, but uh, a lot of different, you could buy their quiver. It was a Delta quiver, but it had somebody else's logo on it. They quit doing that. When they quit doing that, I told Rick, I said, there's a window. Let's step into it. For the price of a stamp, we can start doing, you know, mm -hmm. and, and we have developed some, uh, some collect, very collectible quivers. We built quivers for bear talk about going full circle there you oh, go. Wow. back when bill krenz headed up bill krenz headed up their traditional uh bow hunting uh this would have been in the uh, around 2000 i'm guessing again with dates uh bear came to uh, they were looking for a bow quiver to market and what was called fred bear hunting equipment and uh they had they had other quivers there and and anyway they picked our they picked our quiver to market as their own. So they furnished us with a die that said Fred Bear, I think it said Fred Bear hunting equipment mm -hmm. uh, to stamp their quivers. And that was just before Bear had the shakeup and it pretty well, you know, destroyed itself. So 
there are very few of those out there, those bear, uh, bow hunting quiver. And, uh, so I got to ask you another quiver question. So obviously you shoot great northern bows yeah, <laughs> and yeah. you use great northern quivers. You keep the quiver on the bow when you're hunting or do you, you take it off once you get to your Depends your on when spot? I'm hunting. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, deer hunting, I don't use, I use the side kit. Oh, okay. Okay, so I just take it off, hang in a tree, or throw it beside of me. I, I hunt on the ground a lot and uh, I don't have to. Uh, rabbit hunting, I use the quiver on the bow. It's, it seems to be the best. And squirrel hunting, as long as I'm hunting my own property and I know about where my arrows landed, I can go pick them up. I can go, <laughs> otherwise it's a back quiver because I want more arrows, you know. I just, I, I like a dozen arrows when I'm hunting squirrels. But, uh, yeah, I don't hunt deer with a bow quiver on my bow. And the I've either got to take it off or not use it. I like to, to use the, the sidekick. And it's just so convenient. I've come up with all kinds of, of ways. I, so I, once, I, once I get up into my tree stand, the quiver comes off. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's, again, that's part of the reason I love the Great Northern so much is I can take it off quietly. I can strap it to a limb or I can put it upside down in my pack that's hanging mm -hmm. on the tree. Mm -hmm. But if I'm on the ground and moving, um, it's, it stays on the bow. And it'll be uh, Tom, Tom Jurgensen and I are heading back to Wyoming this year and the, the Great Northern, the, the MLA quiver will be going with me and it'll... While I'm stalking, it'll stay on the bow the whole time. And I don't, it's in my mind, in my, in my brain when I'm up in the tree, I don't want the movement of the arrows up. That's the only sure. reason I take it yeah. off. Yeah. You know, same as mine. I usually, actually when I, when I turkey hunt, I used to take it off. But this year I just put a little hood around the bottom of it this year. So I, my fletching was disguised. But for weaving in between, one of the things I like the most about them is that you can weave into some really thick brush with your bow right. with those yeah. things on there. You can treat it like a fly rod. You poke the bow yep. in and the, the, the arrows follow, you know, and you follow the mm -hmm. arrows. So, yeah. But so, when I, uh, yeah, the I like either, I like white or fluorescent yellow fletching because I got to know where that arrow's going. Yep. And that does not go well with deer right at yep. dark. You know, because they will. I've ex I've played around with them a little bit, and if you're up a tree, and you do this with with either, especially white feathers, they've got you nailed right mm -hmm. now, and it's not normal. You know, they're they're gone. But you uh, you move your in your wrist a half inch, and those arrows that are 32 inches. Right. Or 20 yeah. 30 inches yeah. down they move a lot more yep. Yep. so yep. it doesn't take a lot of movement yeah i usually sit it down right next to me and i prop the next arrow out i keep one on the bow on my lap the other one i prop out and i just have it just so i can just grab it really quick i slide it out of the gripper we at one time fooled around with uh, trying to design a, a hood that you know you could cover up the fletching with and it just couldn't get anything that really nothing really works well no. <laughs> it, it cluttered it up it's another yep. gadget you know yeah i think it, there's not many bow hunters out there that haven't used their face mask to try to cover up the fletchings on their arrows. <laughs> yeah it works okay yeah. but well my dad was a tailor and he had he bought all this fleece material and he he said i'm gonna i'm gonna make something i want you to try and he made he didn't make a hood he made individual arrow fletch cover fleece hoods for every single arrow so when you took it off, you just slid the, the fleece oh, wow. back, and yeah, it was crazy. Didn't work either, <laughs> but it was crazy because then your your fletchy would just get all get flattened down when you pulled it off. But I've seen people try everything from a, you know just the plastic bag and the rubber band to you know for when it rains to yeah. to their face mask to whatever. Over the years, we've had several people come to us with 
ideas, you know, they're all excited about. And one of them was, you know, a cover for your arrows, you know, that they want you to to produce it or use your, your design. And, and but nothing just, and it's hard to tell people, you know, thanks, but no thanks. But you can suddenly, you got to do that, you know, mm -hmm. if you don't want to, you, you've got to constantly on. Our whole concept was keep things simple. And sometimes it's harder to engineer simplicity into something than it is to fix something by adding something to it. More bolts, more screws, more brackets, whatever, rather than take this stuff away and still have it functional. And uh, that concept with our bows and our jackknife system, you know, there's no parts to lose. There's no, uh, uh, no tools to put it together. And nobody else has got it. You know, those are the three things that, that we were looking for at the time and come up with the hinge. So, but yeah, it's been a hoot. It's been a ride. It's been a ride. You had asked me, Nick, about the Great Lakes uh, Longbow Invitation yeah. and how it, same scenario as the Expo. Rick and I and Sharon and Chris, uh, Rick's wife, were coming back from a, a famous, famous shoot down in Alabama, whose name I won't mention. And we were somewhat disenchanted after being down there for a week that it was not really what you we had expected as being a traditional shoot. And I told Rick, I said, you know what, we can do better than that. And again, by, of course, it's a long ways up here from Alabama. And uh, by the time we got home, we had planned that Great Lakes Longbow Invitational. Uh, everything. We didn't have a name for it yet, but as far as where we were gonna have it, when we were gonna have it, we were gonna advertise it as the largest longbow shoot in the world. Uh, and if you do that, it became that, you mm -hmm. know, and it didn't have to be very big at that time. This was in 1985. It didn't have to be very big to be the world's largest. Right. You know, we weren't out. We're just basically telling people that, you know, this is where it's, this is where it's at. And, uh, we had a meeting, uh, over Ron LeClaire's house, he and his wife, Nancy and, uh, Rick and I and Sharon and Chris and, uh, some the the Wilder Creek Conservation Club was a real active club. They had, we didn't want to work, and I say we, the Longbow Association. First of all, Rick and I didn't want to do it. We had our hands full. Uh, the Longbow Association was just a guys that wanted to have a bunch of fun. We didn't want to put on a shoot. We didn't want the work involved. Uh, so we gave it to the club to split. We split it with you fifty fifty. You know, and uh, the costs and and the and the gate. And uh, so that's how that started. Nancy LeClaire named the shoot. She, we were, she was serving us cookies. And <laughs> she said, how about, you know, we're in the Great Lakes. How about, you know, a Great Lakes Longbow Invitational? And it just had that flow to it. And boom, that's what it was. And I've got the original flyer that we, you know, the, that we had. Uh, I, I love that story. And, uh, yeah, we actually did a shirt, uh, a shirt for the anniversary, 30th anniversary that had the old flyer on there with yeah. the with the drawn character yeah, on there. Oh, nice. it's great. It's yeah. great to hear those old Floyd stories. Floyd Eggleston. Uh, and this, you got to remember, this was before 3D targets as such. There was one 3D target company called Golden Arrow. And this guy had a bunch of foam targets, and they had a cutout in them, and there was a paper... Uh, a printed paper vitals that you drop down in there so you could tell where your arrow hit when it went through uh, because it had a heart and the lungs and the liver and mm -hmm. everything on this paper thing and 
and uh, you did this by the by the every target of course had those that's how you scored them and the guy the owner of this uh, took those targets at noon and went and repaired them all and put them back out or any that needed repairing huh. and uh, for so much you know he got a contract so much per target for doing this uh, and again this was there were no other 3d targets that I that before before that that would have been in, in, in 85 I think wasn't that the first year we had it and that what you visualize what's on that t-shirt I think it was 1985 I well actually I think it, well the or it says the org we always look at it as the org started in 83 right and so it had to have been 84 or 85. And by yeah, organization, you mean Michigan, Michigan Lombo Association. Association. Yeah. Yep. I'm, I'm reasonably certain it was 85. Mm-hmm. I, I used to get confused all the time because there was, we always had the start of the the start of the organization and then the GLLI. So yeah, like, and the they two were the always same. in my head. And yeah, I was like, no, the they're not the same. They're staggered. The first shoots, the first shoots that we had, we, the uh, uh, Michigan Lombo Association, Association were at the Bellevue Conservation Club uh, in Bellevue. Which is a little town halfway mm-hmm. between us and Lansing. So uh, that's that's where that started. There was Ron and I don't know four or five other people that I wasn't a charter member. I came along about I don't know six months later, and Ron immediately victim victimized me by making me secretary treasurer. That's where all the work had to be. The president was just a figurehead. That's, that's how it works. You know, he got all the glory. I got all the work. You know. So anyway. And at one time, Sharon, my wife, uh, I was president, and uh, Sharon was uh, secretary treasurer, and that was before it was a legally a nonprofit organization. And we could see, in fact, there was a couple rumors flying around that uh, Leclerc and Brummer using money, and you know, because we had gone on a caribou hunt, and obviously it wasn't the association money, but Sharon and I got to thinking, you know, we totally control this organization, not a good thing. So we got it organized, and uh, I was the first duly elected volunteer president <laughs> of the Michigan Longbow Association. So that, that history. Then, then, for some reason, all the work got shifted over to being on the president. So I never got out of it, but it was fun. It just it finds fun. whoever wants to do it. Sure. It doesn't matter yeah. what position you're of, in. That's usually what it is. Uh, volunteers. Yep. But uh, man, I know, and that's. But it's whatever. been a hoot. I wouldn't change what I've been able to do i mean it just by the grace of god that i didn't plan any of it you know other than i love to shoot bows i love to shoot bows watch arrows fly and like to hunt and oh, always, the rest it, of it just kind of come together oh, it always starts with a group of people who just want to want to throw an arrow yeah that's it yeah and, uh, yep. yeah well i'm i'm going to take you back full circle because we started out talking about hunting and i've i've heard you mention a couple of, uh, of, of animals but uh so what's your What's your favorite animal to hunt? I'm pretty hardcore squirrel hunter. Squirrel hunter? <laughs> oh, yeah. Got to be a better shot to do that. Well, that's part of the thing, being a squirrel hunter, you know, you don't have a lot of game to process. Uh, my record in one, one, you know, one outing is two squirrels, you know, at the, in the same day. So that's plenty. But, uh, yeah, and mainly because... It's a beautiful, beautiful time, especially now that it opens the 15th of September here in Michigan. Uh, it's a beautiful time to be in the woods. You can do a lot of uh, uh, pre-deer season scouting. Mm-hmm. You get to shoot a lot of arrows because it, there's no such thing as an unethical shot on a squirrel. And, uh, yeah, and if you shoot your arrows 
mainly straight up in the air. They're going to come down. They're going to be sticking to the ground. You might not find them today, but I hunt the same area all the time, and I usually find them within three months or so. <laughs> Sometimes it's but a couple of years. I tell you what, the first time I ever went squirrel hunting, we were out. My dad and I were out in the woods, and we ran into this one area that was just loaded with them, and I had a whole back quiver full of arrows, and I kept just flinging arrows, and I wasn't paying attention because you know by the time I'd shoot one, I'd look for another one. Or I'd see another squirrel and I'd shoot again and I'd miss and I'd see another squirrel and I'd shoot again. And before I knew it, I went to throw an arrow and pull an arrow and there was nothing there. And I had arrows all over the woods. I think I found maybe three of them. Yeah, yeah, uh, that can be a problem. I, I try to keep track of of where, you know, one squirrel at a time, you try to keep track of somewhere is where your arrows are because I make all my own arrows. And, and I mm-hmm. tell you what, and I don't just make throwaway arrows. Uh, Every one to me is a, a work of art. Not because it is, but because it, I did it, and it's you know. But uh, I hate to lose them. What do you What do you put on the front of your squirrel arrows? What kind of ace blunts? Ace ace hex blunts. Yep, hex yep. blunts. It's like the those only two. way to go. Mm-hmm. They're cheaper than the other ones, and uh, they won't hardly stick in a tree because they're bigger than what the shaft is. And yeah, they'll. Is is Bob here? I didn't see Bob when I walked yeah. through the tent this yep. morning. I missed him somewhere. I saw him funny. Uh, somebody posted the the potluck, uh, and I saw I saw him in line at the potluck. That's why I know he's here. <laughs> walking walking through the vendor area, I'm like uh, squirrel. You know, I, yeah. I can't focus. I'm I'm constantly seeing somebody or something and bouncing around. No, nope, I got to load up on hex points again too. That I mean, they last forever. I think I've they got do. mine yeah. are all rusted because yeah. I've had them so They're long. They're tough. They're the most. Uh, they're uh, one of bow hunting secrets. You know, they've been around for a long time. And mm-hmm. the judo, of course, back back when I was a kid, Sharon and I made arrows, custom-made arrows. Uh, in uh, wow, it would have been in the 60s, way back in the late 60s. And uh, we made two dozen arrows a day. That was our production. And uh, you could buy at that time, uh, Zwickies were just coming on. Uh, well, they had been around for a while. There were no bare razor heads. And, but when you bought a pack of, of uh, six black diamond broadheads, you got a free judo because they had just introduced the judos, the judo and that was their way of getting them out there. So, and I've still got some of those packs of broadheads, $5.25 for six black diamond deltas. You know, can't beat the price. And a free judo. And a free judo. <laughs> Yep. Yeah, I'll never forget one of the first times I sent a judo into a birch stump, too. My dad and I, the first time we stumped, we said, wow, this is it. We could do this for the rest of our lives and be happy doing it, you know. And that, that was the only archery thing we did. But, uh, yeah, I always got a kick out of the fact that they always they kicked up, you know, if you ever hit the ground with them. But, yeah. yeah. But see, you know, ace do that pretty good. Yeah. They'll gather a little wad of sod and doop. And you can put them in a back quiver, and you don't have to right. snag them or anything like that. Right, you don't have to deal like with that. it, especially if you've got yep. uh, fur or anything around the uh, top of your quiver. You know, a judo, you can't hardly get in there. Mm-hmm. Well, see, do. even our quiver design is made so that you can pick a blunt. You turn them around, around put the, and that does two things. It, it it makes them it makes the quiver work real well, and you don't grab a blunt by mistake when you're shooting it. Mm-hmm. I blunted a javelina down in Texas by mistake one time. Had and we just got through talking about it. You know, I'm watching it. I had hit him once, and he come crawling real close underneath me, you know, grabbed another arrow. Didn't pay any attention. 
he didn't take kindly to being blunted in the shoulder. <laughs> now, how did I did have one more question for you as far as how did the gadget adapter come about for, for bow fishing? Or whatever uh, you want to put on your bow. <laughs> string trackers. Yeah. So that's why it's a t t traditional gadget adapter. Because people are going to say, well, yeah, you know, now you're, we're one step ahead of you. We've already named it traditional gadget adapter. Told a conservation officer once. I, this was at uh, one of the early expos. And uh, the DNR used to come and, and, and uh, you know, just for goodwill. They had a booth. They had given away stickers and pens and all this stuff anyway. CEO's walking around, and he picked up a, a TGA, traditional gadget adapter, and uh, he's looking at it, and I, I asked him, I was baiting him a little bit, I said, you know what that's for? And he said, well, no. And I said, well, you strap it on your bow and you screw your flashlight into it. <laughs> he didn't think that was funny. I thought it was pretty funny, but he didn't see the humor in it. So you're going you're gonna to really think this is funny, so I've, I've got two or three of the gadget adapters, but... I've got a, a setup that I use for hog hunting, which has a, um, it's a gadget adapter with a any rail uh, screwed into that. And then there's a game tracker attached to the top. And there's a, a, yeah, a green, yeah, it's green, a green light that goes in the bottom. So if, if you want to shoot, if you want to hunt hogs at night, you've got your light and your string tracker all there together. And it works like a champ. Yeah. But traditional guys will look at it and go, you know, the quote traditional guys will look at it and go, what in the world have you got? Because it looks like some kind of monstrosity hanging off the bottom, but it works really well. See, I bought one so I could put a stabilizer on the front because the first time I got set up for a bow, the guy, the, the more modern shop guy told me, well, you should try a stabilizer. I was shooting with a cant. And you're in the stabilizer. With the gadget adapter. That's some of the information that why the expo was born. <laughs> Did the Stable. bow would go, and I had a wristling, so I'd shoot like this, and the bow would just fall. Wow. <laughs> just like that, like a yo-yo. We so used you, to oh, make every uh, the first, I've got the first uh, traditional gadget that I still use. It's made out of Osage. Really? Yeah, you can thread Osage, you know, with a regular uh, a nah. tap, and it's as good as anything. Man, sharp. Then we started making them out of uh, diamond wood, you know, small diamond wood that was left over. And we were quite a ways down into that before we started, before we had a, um, a mold made, you know, to have those things. And that $10,000 mold to make those traditional gadget adapters cost Rick and I two bows. You know? Really? So, yeah, at that time it was about $1,000, yeah. It pays to have traditional bow hunters in the industry. Yeah, yeah. The exactly. fellow was uh, vice president of, uh, of a, a firm, Triple uh, S. And they did, well, they made phone cases, uh, cell phone cases. Huh. And, uh, uh, but anyway, yeah, he kept that die under his desk. And so it was our, it was our own private, our own dirty little secret, I guess. So the price to build the die to make those would have been $10,000. That's what it would have price. been if we'd have bought it on the open market. And then yeah. you, and see, that's the part, that's the part of, being in the business to produce traditional archery gear that a lot of traditional people don't realize. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, that, so when you know, you're they, getting, I think those things started back at the, I don't know, even know what they are now, but they were, you know, like. I think they're like $29 now. Are they? Yeah, yeah, yeah we're right. selling them for fourteen ninety five or mm -hmm. whatever. And people don't say, well, it's just a piece of plastic. Yeah, you're right. But how did it get there? And that, and we had to, <laughs> uh, the mold, you can't mold something with threads in it. So we had to. You know, we had to uh, tap all those, every one of them. 
got a little tapping machine, you know, they're self-reversing. So they go into a certain point and then reverse themselves. So it's not a big deal. But when you start talking 500 at a time, it becomes a big deal. Sure. And press the press the roll pins in them. And, but, yeah. TGA, traditional gadget adapter. And the only ones that wouldn't call it that was Three Rivers in their catalog. I don't know if they do today or not, but they've got... It's something else. It's not a gadget adapter. Really? I yeah. haven't noticed that. I always loved that name, gadget adapter. Oh, well, it was kind of you cool. know, it just fit the... Yeah. Everybody knows what it is. Identity, you know, recognition, mm -hmm. that's what it's all about. And it, and it doesn't affect the finish on the bow, and it, no. it uses mm -hmm. the same straps as the, the quivers do. And and those little pine trees, people tell you, where'd you get that idea? It's off a roll of toilet paper, oh, which isn't true, but I don't know. <laughs> I, you know I was like, really? Tree, you wow. know, you think about the northern, northern, northern tissue. Right, yeah, northern, you know, yeah. yeah. But Bob has taken that, so he doesn't even have the Great Northern on it anymore. You look on the back of his shirt that he's wearing. It's just, just the got trees. the pine trees. The guy came in my shop, something went around full circle. Said, look at that, man. He had a tattoo of those pine trees on his arm. Brand recognition. <laughs> I mean, that's that's awesome. That's Take what happens when you, when you produce a quality product for many, mm -hmm. many, many, it's many years. It's either that or old age, you know. <laughs> Time. Well, you're at everything, too. I mean, you're always around, and, and I mean, the yeah. expo is the big thing, too, like the expo. Well, we were f we were first in so many things that go mm -hmm. on. We're the first ones to produce a – nobody else produce a, or has a hinge bow, you right. know, a hinge bow as such. Uh, we were the first ones to resurrect the 50s-style recurve, and, there's, you know, there's just so many things that – things have gone on so long. We're the only – uh, Great Northern is the only advertiser of traditional bow hunter magazine that's been in every issue since the premiere issue. No, that's cool. Yeah, I used to Google the back cover all the time, that's especially cool. with the ghosts, the, the green ghosts. Go back on the old ones, and it was ads that, uh, you know, I I had just enough marketing in college to make me dangerous. <laughs> you know, and. Uh, well, the ads are timeless, though. They're, they are. They yeah, really are. Yeah. And again, look at Fred Bear's ads on the back covers of Archery Magazine. They go way back, you know. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I use those for ideas. Not the same, but just for ideas, you know, that we, yeah. But uh, the uh, shoot in, in uh, Countersport, the Eastern Rendezvous, uh, I think this is the 28th year. We've been there to every one of them. We're the only oh. ones, we're the last ones to do that, so. Man, oh, man. It's well. been a hoot. I mean, it's, how can you ask for anything more? I mean, I've been just truly blessed we should open this up for breakfast or something. I guess. <laughs> Everybody wants to get but, in here. You could have just been a guest speaker. <laughs> yeah. We've, we've definitely got a fan club growing outside, it looks like. Well, well do, you have, do you have anything else, Steve? You know what? I know I was, going, I was just going to say, Jerry, we really appreciate you taking time well, to sit I down appreciate and, and the talk opportunity to share some of this stuff that... And I hope it didn't come off wrong, like I'm bragging. I'm oh no! I just think that it's he brags all the time. I mean, hopefully, yeah, you didn't brag. <laughs> hopefully, you learned some things about history. You know, uh, I'm one of the old guys. I got to face it. You know that, uh, and uh, that some of that information just doesn't get out there. And 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 to be honest, that's that's one of the reasons that you know I reached out to you. Um, Nick and I were talking about it. You know, we like I said, we've had Jay on, and there's so much of this history out there that 
this is a, just a great platform to capture it because yep. it's it's permanent. I mean, once once this gets uploaded onto yeah. the internet and people start listening, it's just it's out there, and it's there's a lot of there's a lot of really cool things that a lot of people don't know about. Yeah. One other thing that I've got, and I for years I never told anybody because it was like dropping it was a name name dropping, and I don't do that. But I'll make an exception. In 1958, I went to the National Field Archery uh, Championships. They were in Grayling. They were hosted by Bear Archery, of course, and they were at the National Guard Camp. And it was the first showing of the, what were that time, was the uh, Boone and Crockett Archery Division Big Game Hits. This is 1958, the first showing of this stuff. Glenn St. Charles came along with because he had half of the heads that were on the wall, you know. And, uh, of course, again, Fred Bear was heavily involved in that in promoting archery. It was the first money shoot. Uh, uh, it was a, a Bear money shoot they had up there, trying to make it a spectator sport, sport right. which is kind of, kind of hard to do. But anyway, I was uh, 16. I had busted my knuckle uh, hitting a pig between the eyes, so I couldn't shoot. Uh, but <laughs> There's I was a story there. there. Yeah, yeah you know, right there. See that? I'll that's a souvenir. <laughs> it's called a boxer's boxer's fracture. But anyway, that's a whole other story. Uh, and uh, I so I ran a on every course of twenty eight targets that a concession stand. And uh, I worked. I changed targets twice a day on those twenty eight targets. Plus, I sold pop and candy bars to anybody that was going because I couldn't shoot. And I was at that time a pretty decent shot for a kid. Uh, had an opportunity one day to, Fred Bear was standing there with, with some other guys, I don't know who they were, and uh, I'd never met him. I, was a, I wasn't a Bear Archery fan particular uh, because they were so local. It was just, they were just common every day. Uh, my heroes mainly were in California, the top target shooters, target and field shooters, and okay. some of the target bows that, that were made back then. But anyway, I went over and I stuck my hand out, you know, a 16-year-old, and uh, shook hands with, with Mr. Bear and told him my, and he, well, he asked me what my name was and I told him and he introduced me to Glenn St. Charles and Harry Bear, his father, was the other gentleman standing there. Very Still gives wise. me goosebumps. Wow. So how many people have met, been introduced to Harry Bear? Had, by, had met, Bear? have met Papa Bear's Papa. Yeah. That's exactly. really cool. Yeah. And, yeah, you won't hardly even find pictures of him. He wasn't a very big man. He was a little rotten. I mean, with all due respect now, you know, what Fred was so tall. And right, yeah. Yankee, but, yeah. Yeah, what, did, what was it? Uh, I think it was Jay was talking about somebody found the found one of uh, Fred's boots that he had discarded. In a, in, in, oh, yeah. In the a little, Delta, uh, it was like a, a size 15. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. And Fred, oh, Fred's the, boots, yeah, they brought them back. The, it's in the yeah. museum. Yeah, Joe. Joe went up there and, uh, oh, God, a fellow from Oregon that I know, a broadhead collector. Anyway, they went in, went to the cabin, and, uh, yeah, they, that those boots were, and there were a lot of broadheads stuck on arrows in the rafters, and they, they brought some of those out, too, because the cabin was in pretty much disrepair. But isn't it huh. amazing that places like that are still yes. virgin enough, left alone yeah. enough that, yeah. that things from you know yeah. the 50s are still there? Yep. Um, very cool. And we actually had a conversation. So we recorded uh, another conversation with Jay around Bozone Little Delta and the Cedar Chalet and all that. And we haven't released it yet. We're kind of holding on to that one. But 
that kind of stuff is. Have you really done cool. Joe? We Is have not. We are. We we are. We are in co- a conversation with um, with Jay, Suzanne. We really want to have Suzanne to talk mm-hmm. about Northwest. Because that's a whole nother from a mm-hmm. from yes. from the the daughter's point of view. Yes, you know, and, yes, yes. Um, and we're working on getting yeah. it scheduled. It's yeah. it's timing and getting getting it on. After that introduction to Glen St. Charles, that was in 1958. I didn't see him again until. I don't know, 1985. Oh, wow. And because I was out of the, you know, that loop. I, and uh, we were in uh, Oregon at the, uh, the Longbow Safari. And Glenn was there. He was there. Of course, it's getting fairly close to where he lived, but he was there, one of, one of their guests of honor. And anyway, I walked up to him and, again, sh- you know, shook his hand and and. Said, don't you don't you rem- don't you remember me? <laughs> that he looked kind of puzzled. I said, well, Fred Bear introduced me to you in 1958. <laughs> <laughs> but that since that day, I mean, I've got more letters. We had more conversations. I mean, it was just amazing that the time that I got to spend with him on a one-on-one. You know, since that time, uh, it's wow. because he's up here on everybody's pedestal, mm-hmm. you know. But yeah, pretty neat. Pretty neat. Classic. Man, stuff. that's a good story. Very good. Story. You got a lot of good stories, Jerry. <laughs> well, Jerry, we need to let you get back to your your booth so you can you can sell more bows and your your fan clubs up there wondering where did where <laughs> yeah, did Jerry right. get off to because yeah. we, we we squandered you away out here in the middle of nothing with yeah but well, we really do appreciate you taking oh the my time pleasure to talk to us. I, like I said I'm glad to get get some of that information out because I don't get a chance to I don't get a chance to tell people other than one on one and they won't stand still for an hour and listen to me but yeah. See, that's my thing. You always hear all this stuff at the fire or at shows and stuff, and I always think somebody ought to be writing this down or recording it or something because, you know, it's just yeah. everybody should hear them, you know. And I try to take the recorder now with me everywhere. Yep. I mean, it's just. I bought one too. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you sitting around campfires and, you know, you know, let people know, you okay if I just turn this recorder and catching some of those stories are just priceless, so. Well, I think we're going to yeah. go back and hit the trail again. Okay. Yeah, might as well. I want to shoot now. Maybe want to shoot. <laughs> well, Jerry, thank you shoot so much. Shoot before it gets warm. Oh, yeah, exactly. Thanks thank you again. Look.